0: Um, I get the blessing to open God's Word with you this morning, and I'm really excited to dive in because Pastor Jeff gave me a passage that talks about slavery in the Bible. It always seems to happen that way when he leaves, so I'm really excited. If you've ever had questions about like, what do I do with some of these really hard to deal with, hard to swallow passages in the Bible, today's message is for you. And I'm actually very excited to dive into that together. And um, I just want to first off recognize that um, I know I sense it. I'm, I'm sure you probably sense it. There's a spirit of heaviness, a spirit of uh, being beat up and bruised by not only the world, but maybe stuff that's happening in the spiritual realm in your own life. And um, I w- I was wrestling with God this morning about this. Like, God, why, why did you give me this text to preach when there's so much like ouch happening all around me and i uh, i just very much strongly believe that that god wants to use his word to offer redemption and a new start and healing and hope and restoration. And I really believe that even in the Old Testament laws that we're going to examine this morning, that God is pointing to something that is extremely redemptive and is offering that to each of us this morning. So if you want to receive that as well, I just encourage you, let's go ahead and pray together. Let's invite the Lord to speak to us and then we'll dive right in, okay? Lord Jesus, I come to you uh, empty of any sort of capacity to minister beyond what you've given, Lord. I, I recognize that you've chosen to use a very frail vessel to deliver your word this morning, um, but we also recognize that it delivers incredible power, that you are offering healing and hope. And, and Lord, I pray that this morning our hearts will be soft to receive what your word is going to give us this morning. God, I pray for those in the room who were hit with some serious artillery, some firepower from the enemy this week. I pray for those in the room who maybe have self-sabotaged some of their own uh, journey this week. I pray for those in the room, Lord, who or those watching online who are feeling physical sickness or Health, Lord, I I pray that you would heal and I pray that you would restore. And Lord, I pray that you would demonstrate your glory and your power through Jesus Christ in your word this morning as as you speak, Lord. Bring life. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. When I was a kid, one of the games we used to play was we used to try to chase each other, except the person being chased, this was their task don't let anybody else step on your shadow, which made for a really interesting game because if you watch people without watching their shadows, it looked really interesting and hilarious. You are like, what in the world are you guys doing? But we would try to chase each other and stomp on each other's shadows. Now, inevitably, we would catch the person and we'd stomp on their shadow and we'd have to prove it. And (laughs) let me ask you this. Why didn't any of us ever develop a headache when someone stepped on our head's shadow? Why didn't anybody of us ever have to go to the hospital when we wound up kicking the shadow of our legs? Well, obviously, it's a self-evident answer that the shadow is not the substance of the real thing, right? The shadow simply indicates what the real thing is, but the shadow itself is not the same thing as the person. The shadow isn't the point. And interestingly enough, we we know this to be true. We're like, yeah, duh, of course. That's why it's a fun game. But the similar thing is true when it comes to God's word in the Old Testament, God's Old Testament law that we're going to uncover this morning. The old covenant that God delivered to his people through Moses was merely a shadow of what God was in the process of revealing through the gospel, who he is who we are, what he does on our behalf, the kind of people that he's making us into for his glory and for the good of the world. The laws that governed the covenant community in the old covenant were given in the midst of a culture that was idolatrous, it was self-absorbed, it was far from God. I don't know about you, that sounds really familiar. And, and what God was doing was not just giving his people, an arbitrary to-do list. God was creating a people who would reflect the creator and redeem their culture. God, even more than that, was pointing forward through the many generations to the one who would ultimately accomplish this mission perfectly. And through him, God wasn't going to just redeem one culture. He was going to rescue the entire world And so the point of our text this morning, before we even get into it, what I want to do is I want to give you the headline right away so that you know how to receive what I'm going to be delivering this morning. The main point that I, and if you're taking notes, this is the great time to start writing stuff down. Um, The point of the text this morning is that um, the word of God without exemption is given to us to bring redemption. Okay, because, because God's covenant is doing more than it seems. It, it rescues, it restores, it redeems. So the, the word of God, without exemption, is given to us to bring redemption. There's a redemptive quality. There's the, 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 the heart of God to restore and transform something into something even greater is evident as we go through the word of God. And we're going to see this accomplished not only through the word of God delivered on the mountain, through the law of Moses. But we're also going to see this pointed to in the word of God sent in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. And we're going to stand, if, if you are able, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read the first few verses here, first 11 verses of Exodus 21. And I promise you, when we start reading, you're going to be like, is this the right passage? Yes, it is. Okay? Uh, Bear with me. We're going somewhere with this. It says like this. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year. And he will owe you nothing for his freedom. And if he was single when he became your slave... He shall leave single, but if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and his children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But if he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her, but if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave but as a daughter. If a man who has has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. I promise you it's the right passage. You did a great job. You can sit down. Now, how many of you have spent a whole lot of time in your devotions in a passage like this? Okay, don't raise your hand because people don't want to hang out with you that way. Right, you might feel really uncomfortable reading the word of God like this. You might go like, I mean, I'll be honest, this is a passage that's brought up to me a lot of times when people go, you know what? The word of God, totally not relevant for today. And maybe even more than that, misogynistic, endorsing slavery, um, socially unjust. And I think what happens is we begin to read passages like this through our current cultural lens. And so we miss, not only do we, we miss a lot. Not only do we think that, something awful is happening here, but we miss that actually redemption is being offered in the pages of the Old Testament law. Now, before I jump into that specifically, I want to start off with this. I think there's a major issue with how we read the Bible. I'm going to function as a a teacher for a little bit here, okay? Bear with me. I think there's a major issue with how we read the Bible, and this chapter and the previous one highlight that perfectly. So we read chapter 20, last week, Pastor Jeff, preached on the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And we think, great, copy and paste into my life, no problem. Then we keep reading, and somehow we have to do these mental gymnastics to convince ourselves that chapter 20 applies to us and chapter 21 doesn't. That's a problem, right? That's either a problem with our thinking, or that's a problem with God's Word. Why do we do this? Why, Why... because here's what happens. The chapter and verse distinctions, right? The chapter and verse distinctions in the Old Testament law delivered by God through Moses were not there. Those, those were added by the English producers of our Bibles, okay? So, so this was delivered as one continuous discourse. So people didn't just hear the Ten Commandments and then stop listening right after that. No, no, God, God kept speaking. This is one continuous discourse from God to Who? To the children of Israel exiting Egypt out of slavery, not to you. Is this God's word for us? Yes. Is this God's word delivered directly to us? Well, that's a different question. Because you weren't there. You're not Jewish. You're not part of the old covenant that God was making with his people, the children of Israel. And so so how do we interpret this? That's the question. In what way do we receive this? And, and that begins to be the issue because we start to apply it and receive it and interpret it differently from one chapter to the next. And then people go, yeah, of course I don't want to believe what you believe. You do weird things with the Bible. So, how, how do we receive this? How do we hear what God is saying to us today? I, I hope I have your attention because I think this is a fantastic question. I want to teach you a very basic principle of interpreting scripture, okay? And it's called the bridge of principalization or the principalizing bridge. I didn't come up with this. Dr. Howard Hendricks um, uh, taught this in a book called Living by the Book. But basically it takes four steps to understand any section of scripture. Because even the newest parts of the New Testament were written in a culture that is very different from ours, amen? And so um, before we start, I I want you to imagine this. We got two towns got one town over here, we got one town over here, and separating them is a river. And the only way to cross between the two towns is a bridge that goes over the river. Okay? So we got that up here? Cool. Um, and, and so the first step is this. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Grasping the text in their town. So the question you're asking is, what did the text mean to the original biblical audience? What did God's people specifically here in Exodus 21, what did they hear God saying in their cultural context? The second thing you need to do is you need to measure the width of the river to cross. So what are the differences between the biblical audience and us today? The third thing you need to do is you need to cross that bridge, cross the principalizing bridge. And so the question now we're asking is, what is the theological principle in the text? In other words, when God's speaking to his people, they're receiving it in a certain way. God's intending an effect for his words to, to land in their hearts and produce something in their lives. What is true about that that will be true for all believers for all time? What's the theological principle? And that's how you cross the bridge. And so then the, third, or the fourth thing you need to do is grasp the text in your town, in our town. So now we're asking the question, um, how do individual Christians live today based on the theological principle that was derived from what God was saying to his people. In other words, based on steps one to three, what is God now saying to me? So as we look at our text this morning, I think the reason that we have a lot of trouble um, reading the Ten Commandments and then reading the laws about slaves immediately following is that one of those crosses that bridge in a way that seems much more natural, so we don't think we're doing it. Right? And so we think, oh yeah, don't steal, don't murder, duh, every culture believes that. So I don't... We don't think that we're crossing this bridge, but the truth of the matter is, um, even though that part of the river seems not as wide, every section of that river, we have to keep measuring the the, the width of that river there, because we have to cross the bridge every single time that we come to God's word. Or else we're just going to proof text things to make the Bible say what we already want it to say. And I don't know about you, but I have a huge issue with people who do that. And so does the world. And, and so if we're going to be effective in not only delivering God's word, but also receiving God's word and hearing what God actually has to say, we have to cross the bridge every single time that we come to God's word. Why? Because the same God is speaking, yes, but we're not in the same town. We need to interpret what's being said. So let's do that really quick. What I want to do is take the Old Testament laws that govern social justice, that govern the tabernacle, that govern the priest, that govern the entire system of worship and law. That's about 11 chapters, and I want to briefly overview that, okay? So, Exodus chapter 21 through Exodus chapter 31, I want to give you a brief overview, uh, and then we're going to start to apply that. What does that look like? How do we cross that bridge, and in what way do we receive God's word? You guys tracking with me so far? Okay, good. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Okay, I mean, they all answered, but yes, I just wanted to make sure. Okay, so what we have first is we have a set of social case laws in Exodus 21 through 24. If you have your Bibles, you open it up just so you can kind of track with me here. Exodus chapter 21 through 24, we have a set of social case laws. So Moses is on the mountain with God. He just received the Ten Commandments, right? And now what's happening here is God's going to explain them, expound on them. We discover that God hates oppression. He hates injustice, but He loves fairness and honesty. That's why wrongs have to be made right. Right? Notice um, Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 23. You've probably heard this because Jesus references this. Exodus 21:23. If there's further injury, the punishment must match the injury. A life for a life, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. See, God is requiring punishment to always be proportional to the crime. God's justice is being revealed here. He's like, no, you don't get to overdo the punishment. It has to be in proportion. We also see that God is compassionate. Okay, skip over to chapter 22, verse 22. 22, 22. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. So God is setting up laws additionally that are wildly progressive for his time. He's giving laws that protect the poor and rescue those lowest in society. Slaves, yes, and I'm going to expound on that later. Women, foreigners, the poor. God wants a society where people are treated fairly, where justice is upheld and where the marginalized are provided for. In other words, God wants a society, he wants a culture of his people that look like him. This is what God's intending the effect to be. God wants a world that looks like him, and so his method of creating a world that looks like him is to create a people that looks like him, through whom he's going to bring redemption and restoration to the world around it. God is not just going to step in and zap everybody, turn them into robots, and everyone's perfect. Why? Because God is an intimately relational God, and he wants to not only be among us, as we're going to notice in a little bit, but he wants to be with us and relating to us. So how do you convince somebody to relate to you in, a, in, in an intimate, close, loving way? You don't force it. That's not love at all. God is offering redemption. Redemption. So we have these set of social case laws in chapters 21 through 24. Then moving on, chapter 25, 26, and 27, what we see are the tabernacle plans. Now, if you, if you skip through anything, you probably wind up skipping through these tabernacle plans. Like, so-and-so has to be this many cubits, and this thing has to be that many cubits, and this thing has to be that many shekels, and bring out the ephod. And you're like, what are these words? What, what in the world, right? I'm actually, I'm reading the Bible, through, through the Bible right now with my kids, um, and we're getting through Genesis, and I'm starting to get through certain things, and I'm like, oh... I have a moral dilemma. Do I stop reading the Bible to my kids because it's a little bit inappropriate? I don't know. The Bible defines appropriate. What's going on here? And so we begin to go through some of these things and and, and, um, and we're like, man, I kind of want to skip through this, but I don't feel right skipping through this because it's God's word. This is the beautiful thing about this. I think if we slow down to understand what's happening, um, it will blow you away because God, what we see here, God's setting up plans to create a tabernacle. In other words, God wants humans to be in intimate, close relationship with Him. He wants to live with His people. Guys, this is wildly unique among religions. That the God of the Bible wants to live in and among His people. That's what the Garden of Eden was designed for. And now, through the tabernacle, God is making the first giant step in restoring the presence that He had with humanity back in the Garden. Check out chapter 25. He even he, he points to this here. Chapter 25, verse 21. Chapter 25, 21 and 22. He says, Place inside the ark the stone tablets, which is uh, inscribed with the terms of the covenant, which I will give you. Then put the atonement cover on the top of the ark, and I will meet with you there. And I will talk to you from among, from above the atonement cover, between the gold cherubim that hover above the ark of the covenant, from there I will give you the commands for my people Israel. So basically, as we begin to read through, um, as we begin to read through these uh, descriptions of how to build the tabernacle, the plans for the tabernacle. If you notice, what's happening is the instructions for how to build this tent start at the center and they work their way out. So they start with the, the mercy seat and the ark of the covenant, and they kind of work their way out to the outer courtyard. That's how they're revealed. And so the mercy seat in the center is in in the holy of holies is the central part of the tabernacle. It's the place where um, atonement was granted for sin, that mercy was bestowed, and God graced His people with His presence. And then right outside of that, there's the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence, and the golden lampstands. And both of these represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the light that continually shines on God's people. Then, well, first of all, that is, this gives us a reminder that God wants to be constantly present, constantly shining on his people. But then outside of that, there's the altar that sacrifices would be made on. And so this is, dist- this is displaying or demonstrating to us that God... His people cannot approach God the way they are, that their sin has to be dealt with through a sacrifice. And then, this is where it began to get, I, I was reading through this, and I was like, do I really have to read through this? Oh my goodness. I don't know how many cubits, 70 cubits is. I don't know, like, and I started, to, but so I, I did a little study. Um, And I think the relevant thing here that I really took away was that everything in the tabernacle, this is really fascinating, everything in the tabernacle is sectioned off by curtains, right? So you've got the Holy of Holies, then you've got the Holy Place, and then you've got the inner court, and then you have the outer court, right? And everything here is sectioned off by curtains. And the closer you got to the holiest place, the more beautiful and the more dense the curtains got. Which would indicate to God's people, the closer you get to God's presence, the more protection you need. Because God is absolutely perfectly holy and we are not. We need a sacrifice to atone for our sins and we need a covering, but yet everything got more ornate the closer you got to the center. And so the closer you get to the beauty of God, or the the presence of God, the more beauty you begin to reveal, the more amazed you become, and the more astounded you are with the glory of God. There there is a progressive beauty as you entered the closeness of the presence of God. Here's the point, that the structure of this tabernacle conveys, I think, one really strong message, that God is holy, he's set apart, he's glorious, he's perfect, and yet he wants to make a way for his people to live among him, to, to live around him, to live with him, to live in relationship with him. God's presence is the point. And then we begin to read about the priestly regulations in Exodus 28 through 29. And this gets even more glorious. And and we're going to point to the gospel later in this. But the the, the beautiful thing here is that um, each piece of the priest's clothing and each action that he's supposed to carry out is designed to reveal a powerful truth. For example, so when the priest would go into the presence of God, he had to carry this breastplate that had the 12 stones Representing the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning that the 12 tribes of Israel needed somebody to intercede for them on their behalf before the presence of God. This was a symbol to all the people that they were being advocated for in God's presence. But the clothing wasn't just symbolic, it was also protection. Check out this is chapter 28, verse 35. Chapter 28, verse 35, Aaron will wear this robe whenever he ministers before the Lord, and the bells will tinkle as he goes in and out of the Lord's presence in the holy place. And if he wears it, he will not die. So so there's a sense in which, and then you also get to the the food um, sacrifices and the sin offerings. There's a sense in which there's a covering, and there's a protection, and there's an atonement That is shielding the man of God even in the presence of God. That God's presence, his holiness, his perfection is actually never to be compromised or taken for granted. Even when holiness is bestowed on God's people. And so these special sacrifices and these special regulations for the priests... They set the priests apart to do the work that God laid out for them to do. Let me wrap this up with this point. The cool thing that we see here is that God is making a way for his people to live near him. For him to live among his people. Guys, this is all worth it because of God's presence. God's presence is the point here. That we need a way to be with God. And on our own we have none. We need a way, and God says, I want to bring you my presence which will heal and will restore and will shine light on you and will set you apart and make you a people that reveal my glory. But you can't do this on your own, so let me make a way to live among you and transform you from the inside out. And then in the last few chapters, Exodus 30 to 31, um, they kind of begin to reveal the last few plans of the tabernacle. And, and there's some really beautiful things that we're going to pick up in a little bit. But before I get to those things, before I have the grand light bulb moment, I want to first stay here in this town and I want to answer a couple points. I want to touch on a few points. Uh, number one, I want to touch on the point of the specific laws governing the covenant community, those case laws, there's some things that are worth asking questions about. And then after that, I want to talk about how these laws talk about slavery. So the the first thing is, on the issue of specific case laws governing this covenant community, you need to know this, that these laws were meant to govern an actual society composed of fallen, sinful human beings. Therefore, they take sin for granted. In other words, they assume it's already part of the fallen state of the people to whom it's being delivered. And they make an accommodation in such a way to mitigate the effects of sin. While understanding that it's being delivered to currently sinful people. Okay? So, um... The first reason that God gives laws like this in Exodus 21 through 24, the first reason is not actually to set up a utopia, but to functionally, realistically respond to sinners. Here's what I mean. In Matthew 19, verse 8, and you can turn there if you want, you can look at this. Jesus makes a comment that is crucial for understanding this. In Matthew 19, Jesus is debating with a number of Pharisees about the concept of divorce. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 we have legal precedent to say it's okay to divorce somebody. And Jesus goes, yeah, you have no idea why that law was given, do you? In Matthew 19, 8, he says this. Because of your hardness of heart, in other words, because God already assumed you were sinful, because the sin was assumed about you, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it was not so. Translation, God through Moses gave you a law that allowed for this, but that's not the highest appeal. Jesus states that the only reason God allowed divorce was this accommodation for sin. It was a way of limiting and mitigating the effect of sin. Like In a perfect world, the, um, the, 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 the implication is that there would be no divorce but we don't live in a perfect world. So what do you do now? A law like this speaks to that, right? Jesus points out additionally that God's creation order is the ultimate standard, right? Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. In other words, that's the higher appeal. But Moses gave you a law to accommodate for where you're currently at. So we actually, we look to creation itself and God's created order to give us a cue of how to treat other people in God's image. That's the ultimate standard. And and so, in a way, these laws are not the ceiling of God's righteousness, but they are the net preventing us from falling further. Does that make sense? So that's, that's kind of what's happening in some of these case laws. The second thing is that they are actually delivered in a way that would help judges to render wisdom in a religious court of law in this context here. They're representative examples designed to train judges in wisdom. So here's what I mean. So the Ten Commandments say do not murder, but what happens when somebody does? What happens if the death was accidental, involuntary manslaughter? What then? Okay, that's what a case law like this is for. The Ten Commandments say do not steal, but what happens if someone breaks into your house and tries to steal from you and you start defending yourself? Because they're not supposed to steal. Okay, what then? Um, What happens if you borrow something from somebody and then it gets lost or stolen? So functionally, it seems like you've stolen. What then? That's what these laws are speaking to. So they expound on what the Ten Commandments deliver initially. Does that make sense? Let's move on to the next issue. On the issue of slavery, this is a fun one. (laughs) I was like, really? Pastor Jeff, you leave and give me this one? I'm kidding. He's preaching the same message up in Elanson. So you see the word slave a lot in chapter 21. And the first thing I want to say is I don't think the word slave is actually a very helpful translation in this case. Because the same root word is translated totally differently when talking about Jesus the Messiah in Isaiah 52, the servant of the Lord. That's, that word servant, ebed, and that word slave here in chapter 21, ebed, same word. The context of what we assume to be slavery is totally different from what is being spoken of here. Okay? It refers to anyone who is subject to somebody else's authority. So, and what I want to do is I want to draw on scholars who are much smarter than me. Um, but the bottom line on slavery here in this passage is that it depicted in this text, it's indentured servanthood. It's indentured servitude. It's not what we understand about the institution, the horrific institution of slavery that, that for example, we saw in the Americas in 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, as our country was being founded. That's a totally, completely separate, unique issue. We're talking about something that's radically different and, frankly, radically more humane. I want to give you four reasons that it's totally different from slavery, and I'll move on past this, okay? The first reason is this, that the servitude was almost always time-limited. So if you'll notice chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, the first couple of verses we read this morning, um, let me give you maybe what might be a more helpful translation, okay? Now these—let me get there really quick. I have it written down, but I want you to see me reading it. These are the regulations you must— Present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he may serve with you no more than six years. It's the same word right there. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. All right, so the basic practice here is slavery, not or is is indentured servitude, not slavery. Here's what I mean. If somebody fell into poverty, if they became destitute, if maybe some sort of illness beset them so they couldn't work, and now all of a sudden their family has no chance of survival or a very slim one, God actually set in a safety net called indentured servitude where they could contract themselves out to be the servant of somebody else. And they'd receive housing and food and clothing and protection and pay in exchange for their work. In fact, if it got so bad, their entire family could do this in a way that was safe for their family. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my favorite baseball player was Randy Johnson, right? Randy Johnson was an amazing baseball player. He's now in the Hall of Fame. And I was ecstatic when all of a sudden he was acquired by the Arizona Diamondbacks baseball team. And they wound up, went on to win the World Series because a couple of years around there, they acquired a bunch of really good players. Okay? Um, Servitude in the Old Testament, someone acquired a servant somewhat like a baseball team acquires a player. Track with me. Yes, there's an exchange of money. Yes, the person is now under new authority, but it's a time-limited arrangement, and there's no sense in either case that the person is reduced to a state of property. In fact, there are property laws, none of which would talk about human beings because God never views a human as property. So First thing is what we have here is time-limited indentured servitude. The second, thing, second reason is totally different from slavery is that the law prohibits kidnapping people and selling them. Check out Exodus chapter 21 verses verse 16. The third reason is if a master ever injured his servant, the servant went free. Exodus 2126 to 27. And the final thing is that the law actually required that runaway servants not be returned to their masters. And this is actually picked up in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So, so this, this is wildly different from slavery, what we understand to be slavery. This is indentured servitude. It's actually a way to offer a new start, a, a, a second chance of survival. Ancient Israelites were not slave owners, nor does the Mosaic law endorse slavery. So what's the point of this law regarding indentured servitude? It's actually the opposite of what we think. It's to protect the vulnerable. This is is God's redemptive heart being displayed, not not some sort of like crazy egomaniacal system where you could um, put other people down and and, and, and justify it by quoting God's word. It's the exact opposite. That servitude in Israel was a social safety net. And these laws are there to make sure that that safety net holds and to make sure the net can also help set people on their feet. So here's the thing. I think we skip through these chapters of the old testament these mosaic laws i think we skip to them skip through them to our own detriment we miss a lot when we just stop at the 10 commandments we really do why because the word of god without exemption is delivered to us to bring redemption that's why we have god's word that's why god speaks to his people to redeem and restore The cool thing about this, these, these chapters that we're studying this morning, the cool thing about this is that um, we're actually given some amazing shadows of Jesus Christ. It's, it's everywhere. I want to blow your mind for a second that this entire text of the law is designed to point to the gospel. Every single thing about it is designed to point forward to one who will eventually usher us into God's presence perfectly and totally with confidence, without any spot or blemish. We are destined for redemption. This is what God is pointing to even in the Old Testament. The gospel is everywhere in this text. It's all over the place. Jesus is constantly pointing towards, um, being pointed towards in this text, and, and what I want to do is demonstrate this to you for a minute. It's going to feel a little bit like a fire hose. I'm going to quote a bunch of scriptures at you, so I'm going to have a bunch of scriptures on the screen. If you're taking notes, write the references down. You can look at them later, but what I want to do is demonstrate that this entire 11 chapters here, even, I mean, obviously chapter 20 as well in, in the Ten Commandments, all of this is designed to point towards Jesus. You ready? Here we go. We see the gospel in the social laws of Exodus 21 to 24. Right, so Jesus himself picks out some of these, and he mentions them in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, he says, uh, You heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. The way Jesus spoke about the laws shows what he was on earth to do, that shows the whole point in the heartbeat of God's law. Because we've done evil to God. We deserve eye for eye punishment, but then Jesus turned the other cheek. In fact, Jesus took our place and received all of our eye for eye, tooth for tooth, bone for bone punishment. How so? He received proportional justice on our behalf. And you're like, no, he didn't. He received the infinite weight of the wrath of God. Yeah, that was proportional to what we have done we have offended an infinitely holy God. I hope you feel the weight of this, that your sin is against an infinite God and it deserves an infinite punishment. And so Jesus, the infinitely holy one who represents us and stands in our place, proportionally took all of that justice on himself. Jesus was the only one who had never broken a commandment. Never broke a single one of God's laws, but he died as if he did. Why? That's not fair. No, it's not. That's the point. It's called grace. It's called grace. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering. Where do we get the concept of offering? Exodus. To be the offering. Well, actually, in Genesis, but it's legalized in Exodus, to be the offering for our sin that we would be made right with God through Christ. How is it that you get off an infinite consequence because somebody paid it for you? Now the sacrifice has been made and you've been granted access into the presence of God. God. And even more than that, the the kind of just and fair society that the law was designed to accomplish through its commands is actually fulfilled in the people who were saved by Jesus. See, by perfectly fulfilling these social laws towards us, Jesus trains us to be the kind of people... Jesus trains us to be the kind of people who can fulfill them towards others. Since he loved us when we were the poor and we were the marginalized and we were the ones far from God, now through his spirit, we can be the ones bringing that redemption and that kind of love to other people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says this, that we love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. The only operative way that you are able to love others and the only reason that you have to love somebody else is because that was first done to you and through that action god now redeems your life he restores your he, he, he offers you his love not just to be receiving it but now to be a conduit of it to bring it to other people and through you he is bringing redemption to the world We see the gospel in the tabernacle plans in Exodus 25 through 27. This is what makes the word of God in the flesh so magnificent, that Jesus is the final tabernacle in which the presence of God dwells. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, So the word became human and made his home among us. Literally translated, he tabernacled among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory and the glory of the Father's one and only Son. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill the tabernacle, but every single part of the tabernacle. He's the actual of holy of holies because he is God's presence. Colossians 1.19. Jesus is the bread of life who's present for his people. John 6.35. He's the light of the world that shines on them eternally with his protection. John 8.12. He's the final sacrifice on the altar that allows us to enter the holy place of God. Hebrews 10.12. Furthermore, at Jesus' death, what happened? The curtain Of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Translation, God tore the temple's curtain. No longer separating people from God's presence. Why? Because a perfect way was made. Jesus fulfills everything about this law. For you. And all people who belong to Jesus have been turned into little tabernacles in Whom God dwells through his Holy Spirit. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? He goes on to say, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now in you the presence of God dwells through the Spirit of Jesus. You are the temple. And eventually, Jesus is going to return and transform the whole world into his temple when he sets up this place as his physical dwelling place. Jesus fulfills Exodus 25 through 27. Then we see the gospel in the priestly regulations in 28 to 29. Now, if you want to fully read the entire book of Hebrews, it's mind-blowing. We did that actually with our students this summer. One of the things we did was we, every Sunday night, we would just get together and read, uh, we would do our best to read an entire chapter of the, or entire book of the Bible together. And uh, it was um, not exactly an exciting youth group, right? We had clan wars, and that was a t- ton of fun. And the other thing we would do is we would do a Bible study. And we were like, all right, cool. Um, come back an hour from now and just read this whole book. And one of the books that we read was the book of Hebrews. And we got back and we we're like, it's not enough. Oh, my word. I want to keep reading the word because the gospel is just pouring forward in the book of Hebrews. And it was mind-blowing. Um, but, but what we begin to see is that Jesus now is our perfect high priest. Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for our sins and for his sin. Why? Or Jesus didn't need to offer a sacrifice for his sins. Why? Because he was sinless. He gave himself as the perfect sacrifice. And, and this is one of those texts in the book of Hebrews that I just absolutely adore. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest... Offered himself. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the one receiving the sacrifice. He's enough. He offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins. Good for all time. And then through our one perfect high priest, we are now made priests. 1 Peter 2.9. And finally, we see the gospel in the final tabernacle instructions in Exodus 30-31. We can see Jesus in the altar of incense. The true and final aroma that is pleasing to God. This is, this is so beautiful. The true and final aroma. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. Jesus fulfills the incense in the temple. And now with Christ, through his spirit, guess what happens? You and I carry that aroma. We carry that aroma to the world. You need to get this. I I, I think... I think Christians go one of two ways. We're either just like, believe what I believe and then I'll love you. Or they go like, it's all good. Truth doesn't matter. As long as you feel good, as long as you feel loved, like love is love. Like, it's, just, it's all about feelings, bro. Interesting how my voice changed on those two. <laughs> but we do this. And neither of those smell like Jesus. You know what both of those smell like? They smell like things that lead to death. They smell like decay. They smell like meaninglessness. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, He uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and and doom. But those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume, aroma, fragrance. In other words, we take God's presence out of the tabernacle and we fill the world with it. We are God's temple. And in the presence of God, we begin to smell like God, full of truth and full of grace. And then we go out into the world without compromise and without pride, without selfishness, in total humility. Then we begin to proclaim the Word of God in relationship we've built over time in trust in say like you see what i mean like not only are we are we leaning into the love and the grace of christ as we build relationships but now we are not silent because we are proclaiming the word of god and in that together we begin to smell like the aroma of god the point I'm trying to make with this, in the Old Testament laws, what we see is the gospel everywhere. That God is revealing who he is and who we are and what he's doing among us and how he's using us to transform the world for his glory and for the good of our culture. The word of God without exemption is given to us to bring redemption. So real quick, what I want to do is I want to offer three ways that that practically shows up in our lives. Three ways that that practically shows up in our lives that God uses us to bring redemption. Uh, Number one, since we are poor and marginalized and foreigners, yes foreigners because we're not Jewish, we can love anybody anywhere no matter their standing, no matter their position. Because why? Because God did that for us. The point at which you begin to ask, yeah but what about so-and-so? That's a good time to start asking from God's perspective, yeah, but what about Brandt? Because when I begin to ask that question, I don't have a good answer other than the love of Christ, which is just as applicable to so-and-so. Because of Jesus, you can love that person Yes, that, that person. In fact, I would go beyond saying you can love them. If God's putting someone on your mind, chances are when you leave today, you should probably reach out to them. That's the effect of God's word, that we are the ones who bring redemption. The second thing I would mention is that we are called to co-labor with Jesus in offering God's redemption and reconciliation to the world. God's redemption... Happening through his people is the point. God wants to make a way to be among his people and they can be in relationship with him. How does he do that? He redeems and restores us and then he uses us to bring that to the world. Check out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And all this is a gift of God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making us appeal through us. But we speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So, no, your safe Christian bubble is not the center of God's will. The mission of God to rescue and redeem and restore a hurting world is a lot closer to the center. That's where the excitement is. That's where the redemption is. That's where you'll see reconciliation happening like crazy. Get on mission with a God who's bigger than your bubble. The final thing that I noticed is this. Because we are now filled with God's presence, that we have been given a way into the presence of God, and now we are being redeemed by God and redefined by God, we are called to represent him to the world. And so it's one thing to be in the world, but we're also called to be not of the world. Right? In other words, God is calling us to actively engage the lost world around us, but we're called to be holy and set apart. Different. So yes, get out into the world. Get on mission with God. Don't rely on a Sunday morning experience as you follow Jesus. Make friends with lost people, but make sure that it's Jesus making the difference in their lives and not the other way around. Make sure that those spaces start smelling like the aroma of Christ and not that you start smelling like the aroma of death. And so for some of you, This means you need to get out of your butts on Sunday morning. Just get get out of your seats. I mean, get off your butts. Get out of your butts. That's a weird way to say things. Just get out of them. We need to get off our butts on Sunday mornings. This is not the only place to follow Jesus. And we need to start reaching the lost people with our words and with our actions. Get out there and make friends with people who would trust you to share the gospel with them. But for others... Here's the truth. It means you have to start or stop making excuses for the stench of worldliness in your life. You need to break the ties that are pulling you down where where you're not actually representing Jesus because you're compromising your faith left and right. Come out from that place and be separate, be sanctified, be set apart, be holy. Yes, you have to Be in relationship with lost people to win them. But God will use you in your holiness and your sanctification, not in your compromise. Through redeeming you, God will redeem others. So this is what we see displayed by God. his, His heart for redemption. Delivered in the word of God on Mount Sinai through the law of Moses. But also delivered through the word of God sent in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And this is the point that the word of God without redemption, without exemption is given to us to bring redemption. And, and we're the blessed ones who bear this word in our hearts, in our hands, in our lives. Let's not be tearing others down, especially in this house of God. Let's be the ones who labor together to redeem the lost and broken and sick places of the world. Let's, let's bring Jesus, the word of God, to a world that needs redemption. God, I recognize that there's so much in your word for all of us. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave this morning, that it would not, that your word would not be lost on distracted hearts, that your word would fall on good soil, And that it would produce fruit in our lives. That we would leave here not just receiving your word, but being partners with you and bringing your word to the lost world. Lord, use this community, this new covenant community of believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, to transform and redeem the world around us. Start with us, God, and work your way on Amen.